This is key value driver number nine for your business, your financial review for non-finance professionals. Join us on this edition of The Inside BS Show. Hey now, I'm Nikki G. This is The Inside BS Show. Joining me this morning is Dave Lorenzo, the godfather of growth. Dave, how are you? Hey now, Nikki G. I'm great. One of my favorite topics, finance for non-financial professionals, not. This is not a topic where we are going to give you accounting advice. We're going to share with you today the five areas that Nikki G and I look at when we're looking at a business. And based on what we see from these five metrics, that's when we determine whether we want to dig further into the business or if we're working on a business to try and increase the value. These are the first five things we look at. And then after we look at these five things, that's when we bring in valuation experts and we bring in a CPA who can go through everything with a fine tooth comb. Sometimes we bring in a fractional CFO if we really need to overhaul the financial reporting structure and the controllership aspects of the business. But today, these five things are the five things that we look at to determine how you're doing. So think about it this way. You go to the doctor's office. And the doctor says, take off your clothes, hop up on that table. And they put that little paper gown on you, which makes everybody feel so comfortable. And you're sitting there and what do they do? They take your temperature, they take your pulse, they take your blood pressure. The guy looks in your eyes, he puts the tongue depressor in your mouth, he looks at your throat, he does an overall cursory exam. These five things are your business in a paper gown, hopping up on the table. That's what these things are, okay? Just for that visual, take it away, Nikki G. Ah, I love it. Let's let's just dig in, Dave. Number one, cash flow. We all love cash flow. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so businesses go out of business not because they don't have enough revenue. Businesses with strong revenue go out of business sometimes because they don't have enough cash flow. They're not they're not collecting the money. They're not working on terms that are favorable for their business. So the very first thing I look at is how much cash flow is coming into the business, how their, how their accounts receivable are, how many days outstanding their accounts receivable are, what the terms are that they have with their vendors, how they're paying them. Just an overall quick check of the free cash that's available to the business. Why? Because if the business has a cash flow issue and we're coming in to help improve the value of the business, most of the time cash flow is an easy fix. Negotiate better terms with your vendors, negotiate better terms with people who are supposed to be paying you, and you could be in a better situation just within 30 to 60 to even 90 days. If you've been listening to the show, you've heard the story about how every business that I've taken over, I've gotten rid of any type of direct billing or accounts receivable relationships I've had. And the reason I did this was for, because of cash flow purposes. If I sell something, I want to get paid before I sell it or at the time when I deliver it, never ever after. So cash flow is the first thing I look at. What do you think, Nikki G? Yes, and to be distinguished from revenue, we are talking about liquid cash, like what you can access when you need it. And so you do not want that to be tied up where it is sitting and you are waiting months and months to receive it. So money in the bank is cash flow. number one money in the bank number two ebitda yeah earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization this is the bottom line the bottom 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 line right why do we look at this okay so 
I look at this not to go back and diagnose whether you're taking the right amount of depreciation on your furniture, fixtures, and equipment, not to diagnose if you took bonus depreciation on that aircraft you bought. I don't look at it for that purpose. I look at it specifically because in an industry-by-industry industry comparison, we want to know about how much you're going to get for your business if you just listed it with a broker. And that's usually a multiple of your EBITDA. Now, in most service businesses, you get like a one times multiple of your EBITDA. So basically, whatever your EBITDA is, somebody's going to pay you that for your business. In like gyms, for example, I worked with a guy who sold a, a, a brick and mortar gym. And in that industry, it's not unusual to get a five or a six times EBITDA multiple because what do you have in gyms? You got a lot of recurring revenue. So pretty exciting. We can do better than whatever the industry standard is. But first, I need to know what your EBITDA is. And I'm not a valuation expert. I bring in valuation experts. But I want to look at the EBITDA so I can do a really cursory look at where you are right now and how we can improve that bottom line number. And then I'll look at the multiple and I'll go, listen, if the broker is telling you that gyms in this area are going for four or five uh, times EBITDA multiple, I think if you go through this checklist with us and we work on this for a couple of years, you could probably get six to seven times EBITDA. That would be that would be great. Let's look at what that would be today. And by the way, just going through this process is going to improve your EBITDA by about 30 or 40 percent. So you're looking at a more significant number. That's the reason I look at EBITDA first so that I can kind of frame the discussion about and set expectations for an exit down the road. Now, if a business owner is bringing me in and they want just business strategy work and they're not exiting for 10 or 15 years, I still want to look at the EBITDA to figure out how much money the business is making. I want to look at the bottom line to make sure that the business is healthy and they're producing a profit. And I'll probably want to do some uh, comparables. I'll probably want to look at some other businesses in that industry to see how their EBITDA compares to other businesses in that industry. One quick caveat before I kick it back to you, Nicola. Smaller businesses that have all the owner's expenses running through the business, you got to subtract those out too because you're not going to sell your business. A sophisticated buyer is not going to buy your business without going, hey, Joe, what are all these charges from the supermarket on the company credit card there? There's like $15,000 worth of groceries. You're buying groceries for your manufacturing business? And Joe, you got like six cars here. You don't do any fleet work. What are all these cars going through the business? And that trip to Hawaii that only two people went on last year that was $30,000. Joe, what was that $30,000 expenditure for? Was it to recognize your top salesperson and just you and he went on the trip? Or is it more likely you and your wife went to Hawaii and charged all that stuff to the business? And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm not the IRS, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you what you should and shouldn't put through your business. What I am telling you is, when people go to value your business, they're gonna subtract all that stuff out, and that's gonna come off of that. So that number may look a little different. Okay, Nicola, what are your thoughts? You know, I have to pick up on that point about running too many personal expenses through your business. So it also creates legal exposure, keep that in mind. So it can impact your bottom line. It can also create exposure for you if you're running too many things that are clearly not business related through your business. Your country club membership, swim lessons for the kids, just don't do that. It's, I, I get it, it's tempting with smaller businesses. Maybe you can you know use some of it for a business related expense, like you're taking clients to lunch, but 
be thoughtful about that because it, while it may provide some short-term benefits, there are tax risks associated with it and legal risks associated with it. Um, so the metric here that we were talking about with EBITDA is really, that's, that's going to be a common metric for valuation professionals are going to look at. So Dave's going to look at it on the front end as someone who's going to help you think through what the business may be worth. And your professionals who are going to help advise you with respect to the valuation are certainly going to take a deep dive into that. So it's good to know what it is and to also start thinking about, you know, what is my business worth as you continue to grow and you plan for your exit. Let's go to point number three, Dave, which is client lifetime value. Yeah, I love I love client lifetime value. It's like my favorite thing to calculate. And most businesses don't calculate this. They don't even think about it. The reason that client lifetime value is so important is because this is probably the one of the first ways or the easiest way to increase the value of a business. If I can double your client lifetime value simply by offering an additional product to everyone in your in your client base, it's a no brainer for me to do that and help you add value to your business. So, you know, the calculation for client lifetime value, I've seen it done a number of different ways. The way I do it is I just take the average number of years that you've been in business, I take your, the number of clients that you have, I take the amount of revenue and I just simply do the math. Now in professional services firms, sometimes I see people add the value of the referrals if they track them that, uh, clients have provided, that really makes things too complicated. Client lifetime value tells me how deep your relationships are with the people who are paying you and increasing the value that your clients provide to your business is one of the fastest ways to improve the overall value of the business. So, you know, going out and acquiring another business that sells complimentary products or services to your product or service is a great way to increase client lifetime value. Setting up another function in your business is a great way to uh, increase client lifetime value. So how do we how do we do that? What are what are some great examples of doing that? Let's go back to our brick and mortar dry cleaner, right? So the dry cleaner has a drop store where people bring in their pants and their shirts. And then at the end of the day, the truck comes by and takes it all to the one centralized plant location. Well, this one dry cleaning shop has a lot of foot traffic and people come in all the time and ask about tailoring. So they start doing tailoring in the dry cleaner shop. The dry cleaner has a lot of demand for tailoring and they have five stores. So what do they do? They hire a tailor and they have the tailor sit in each of the stores one day a week and then they start offering tailoring. So those people who drop off their clothes, if they're getting their email information, if they're getting their cell phone numbers, if they're getting their addresses, they do an email campaign, a text campaign, and a direct mail campaign, letting everybody know who's a client of theirs that they now offer tailoring, and they can increase the client lifetime value by providing a secondary or an ancillary service. It's a no-brainer to think like this. What else can I provide my core client base to increase the client lifetime value? Nicola, your thoughts. So this is what's going to really make a difference in having those long-term valuable relationships to increase your business value. Think about it, and I'll give you the, the opposite examples. You have this, the dry cleaner, and you're sending out, let's say, flyers, and you're getting a lot of new business from those flyers, but customers aren't staying that long. You're noticing that you have to continue to keep getting new customers. Well, at evaluation time, someone was going to look at that and say, but you have all this, this revenue, that's great but these aren't clients who are gonna stay with you in the long term. So some of them have to keep doing that work. 
that's not going to help you get there when someone really wants to buy that business or you're going to look at what's going to be valued at, you're going to get a lower number for it. So you've got to think about, and you gave us some great examples, Dave, how am I going to make sure those customers stay with me in the long run by providing additional value to them in ways where you're providing the same excellent service, but you're also providing ancillary services to make sure that you can get them to stay longer with you, create great lasting relationships. So point number four, let's move on to that, which is also related to your client base. The cost of customer acquisition. I love this. So the, the higher the cost of customer acquisition, the greater the barrier to competition. So, and what we do with our clients is we look at ways that we can increase the client lifetime value so that the customers are more valuable and then we can spend more to acquire the customers. So how do you calculate cost of acquisition? Again, without doing the math, you take all of your advertising expenses and you divide it by the number of clients and then you figure out how much it costs you to acquire a new customer. If you can acquire a new customer at break even, then you're doing very, very well. Most of the time in service businesses in particular, you acquire a new customer at a loss. So again, let's go to the gym example that we gave. If you have a brick and mortar gym and you're doing a lot of advertising, it may cost you $150 to acquire a new customer, right? But that new customer only is paying you, let's say, 75 bucks a month. So you don't break even on that customer until month three. So your cost of acquisition is whatever, 150 bucks or uh, 175 bucks, whatever I said. And it takes you three months to break even on that customer. So the cost of customer acquisition being higher is a barrier to entry because a lot of people might not be able to survive. Why do I know what it, why, why do I want to know what it is? Because I want to try to find creative ways to lower the cost of customer acquisition. And we can do that in a couple of different ways by acquiring more customers using the same methods. Maybe you're not closing all the people who come through. A couple of days ago, we talked about the supply, the, the customer life cycle, the client life cycle, and how converting people uh, from being uh, prospects into clients is a big deal. If you get better at conversion, you can lower your cost of acquisition by converting more, right? Or if you find another method of attracting these customers, like by posting free content on the internet instead of advertising, you can drive down your cost of customer acquisition. So the thing about cost of customer acquisition is two ways to look at it. If I come in and it's really expensive to acquire a customer, I get excited. Why? Because number one, it's hard for people to compete because the customer acquisition cost is so high. Number two, if I can figure out a way to acquire customers for less, for a lower dollar amount, that could be a competitive advantage for this business and I can unlock a ton of value in this business. So the advertising versus free content is a fantastic way to do that. You're watching this show maybe on YouTube or maybe you're listening to the podcast. We get leads from these shows. We're good at this. People who aren't good at this have to spend more money on advertising. And if they're spending more money on advertising, their cost of customer acquisition is higher than ours. So if our cost of customer acquisition is lower, in theory, what happens? That money falls to the bottom line. So I love it when I come into a new business, Nikki G, and the new business has a high co cost of customer acquisition because I know about a thousand ways to reduce that, to lower that, 
to attract more customers more efficiently, more effectively. I love cost of customer acquisition. I love looking at it. Those of you who are listening, watching right now, some of you just drove off the road in your car because you're like, crap, I'm not even tracking this. I got to go figure out how to do that. So we'll put a link in the show notes to the definition on our website, Nikki G, those definitions of cost of customer acquisition. Yeah, this is great. This is a, a measure that you need to make sure you understand for your business so that you can lower it because you're leaving value on the table. You're able to lower the cost of bringing in these customers so you can make more money for your business. And you know, we talk about this often. It's about how are we helping you increase the value of your business? And this is a key component of that. Let's hit number five, Dave. Number five is your return on investment or ROI. And I want you to also mention when you talk about this, Dave, the fact that how you use this for any type of investment. This is important even if you're just setting up a marketing event. We were talking about this not that long ago. Yeah, I, I try to calculate the return on investment of my kids. They got to be they got to be highly productive and produce a positive <laughs> return on investment or else they're not they're not earning their keep around here. Seriously, that's the degree to which I want you thinking about return on investment. So what Nikki G and I were talking about is we have a we have a mutual friend who runs a law firm here in South Florida who happens to be a dear, dear friend of mine. And years ago, I helped them set up an annual event. And they said to me, Dave, we want to do an annual event and we want to give back to the community. We want to invite all of our uh, attorney friends. We want to invite all of our clients. We want to introduce them to one another. And this year's theme is going to be diversity, but we'll, you know, we'll do a theme every year of things that are important to us and the firm. One year they did environmental sustainability. Uh, another year they did different charitable in, uh, initiatives that were important to everyone all over the community. And they have different speakers come in and it's a fantastic idea. And I said to them, what's your budget for this event? And they gave me the budget and I said, all right, what's the return on investment going to be for this? And the, the person uh, who's my buddy, he sat back in his chair and he said, Dave, we're just doing this to give back. We're not looking for an, a return on investment. And I said, you know, excuse me for one minute. This is still a for-profit business. This is an endeavor that needs to produce a return on investment. And he said, well, I'm not sure how we're going to do that. I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to engineer into this event different points in the program where you and your partners can talk about what it is you guys do around here. And we're going to see how many referrals come to the firm as a direct result of the things you talk about at that event. And we're going to put one of your partners at each of the tables. And when we have discussions after each of the speakers, your partners are gonna facilitate the discussions so that everybody's exposed to the brilliance of the talent you have here at your firm. And he said, okay, that's a great idea. And sure enough, over the course of the next year, people who had attended that event who had never done business with the firm ended up doing business with the firm and they were able to produce a positive return on investment from that event. Everything you do in a for-profit business should be measured against return on investment. Now, I know what you're thinking. Hey, Dave, you know, my copier is not going to produce a positive return on investment. Well, Nicola will tell you, if you're in a law firm and you're punching in the, the client number on that copier, your copier is going to produce a positive return on investment, even in a law firm. So... I like to look at everything through the ROI lens as often as we can. Um, I'm not getting a positive ROI on my kids, but I hope to at some point, Nicola. I really do. <laughs> no, that's, that's great. So having a, a more focused view of ROI is really going to help your business in a lot of ways. And I, I love the, the event example because it's somewhere where we might not immediately be thinking about 
what is my ROI going to be on this? Um, we've seen it so many times though, and, and, and not to take away from the objective, you can still provide an event that has a charitable focus. And I don't think that distracts from the fact that you, you want to support the charity, but you're also a business and you can think about, you know, inviting particular clients you want to get in front of to help develop relationships. So there still can be you know, some sort of positive return out of the good that you're doing. So think about it a little bit more focused as, as you suggested here today. And I think that that's great. So that wraps up our five points for your financial review, even if you are not a finance professional. This, if you've enjoyed today's show, make sure to watch another episode. I'm Nikki G. You are? I'm Dave Lorenzo. Don't just watch another episode. Share this with your friends. Go tell some friends about this show, please. We don't do any advertising here. I need to produce a return on investment from you people. <laughs> you people who are listening and watching. Share the show with some friends, please. We appreciate you. We love you. We want you to come back, but tell your friends too. That's right. We're going to go work on our own ROI. And we'll be back here tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm, I forgot to tell you, I'm the godfather of growth, but you knew that. See you tomorrow.